today's sermon, I, to be honest with you, is a little different than normal. Nothing makes elders more nervous than the preacher saying that. Um, I, I want to start maybe in an unexpected place. It was a, something of a, a crisis or a scandal, some believed, in 1999. I'll let uh, the Washington Post explain it. They said, they've taken the cotton out of bare aspirin bottles. The wads of fluff that kept headache sufferers from their pills when they opened a new bottle of aspirin are gone and have been since January. This is September of 1999. The Bear Corporation in Pittsburgh decided cotton had outlived its usefulness and that getting rid of it wasn't worth mentioning. But this is the news. It turns out that cotton hasn't been necessary to keep pills from jostling around and disintegrating since the 1980s when Bayer started covering its aspirin in microcoating. So now the company ships its signature pill bottles without cotton plugs stuffed into them, and life goes on. Most aspirin buyers probably haven't even noticed that an era has ended. Have you noticed that? You remember when you used to get medicine, you'd open it up, you'd pull out the little cotton ball and... You couldn't get all of it out, and it took forever, and your headache was gone by the time you got to the bottom of the bottle. Some companies have followed suit with Bear, and others haven't. And it's interesting, the article goes on to talk about that some people were calling the Bear Aspirin Corporation when they opened their bottle and the cotton wasn't there. They thought some, someone had tampered with the aspirin, that, that it wasn't safe. People were asked, why do they put this in the aspirin? And some people say, well, it's to keep the moisture out. It's to, it's to keep the pills fresh. It turns out none of that was true. It turns out they put that cotton in there because they don't fill the bottles with, with pills. And they didn't want the bottle to shake and, and to break the pills. And, and then when they came out with their gel tablets and decided they didn't need that, they figured out they didn't need the cotton at all, but they kept doing it anyway until they decided to quit. It's funny the things that we do without knowing why we do it. And it's funny the things we take comfort in that really provide no comfort at all. I mean, the cotton made no difference. And, and so here we are in the midst of this mini-series on worship, and I thought, I thought it was important that we take one day, at least one day, to stop and ask, why is it that we worship the way we do. Why is it that we do the things we do on the day we do them in the way we do them? And so it's a little different sermon because I'm, we're going to run through a lot of stuff. I, I hope you've got something to write down. So for some of you, this will be a sermon you probably grew up hearing at some point in your life. I grew up worshiping in churches of Christ and I, and I grew up hearing sermons like this all the time. In fact, this was, in large part, the only sermons I heard in some places. Why do we worship the way we do? And, and some of us grew up, we became preachers, and some, of, some preachers of my generation decided that we had talked about that stuff too much, and so we quit talking about it at all. And so there arose a generation that knew not why. Why do we do the things that we do? And so for some of you, this will be kind of a reminder, a refresher, if you will. For some of you, this may be your first time ever at Wilshire. And you may be wondering, why do they do that? Why do they not do that? And so I thought it's important to talk about why. 
And then, of course, there are voices in our culture, voices within the church and voices outside of the church, that are trying to convince us that the way we worship is outdated. And that we need to do something to change what we do every time we gather together. And so I thought just for a brief period this morning that it would, it would be important to stop and just ask the question, why do we do it like this? I thought it was important to let you know that it is not the purpose of this sermon to malign or question those who do it differently. That's not my purpose. This is not meant to be a definitive sermon answering every question and every objection. I'll admit some of the topics that we'll run past this morning are extremely, and I mean extremely, controversial. And I understand that they require a lot more conversation than we're going to be able to give them this morning. And I hope those conversations will continue with me or the elders or another member of this congregation. But I also need to tell you this sermon is not intended to be defensive in nature. Quite the contrary. You see, I believe we have really good reasons to do the things we do. To worship the way we worship. And I get frustrated sometimes when people try to put me on the defensive or or us on the defensive for doing what we're doing as if we have no reason to be doing it. And I want you to know this morning that The way we worship here at Wilshire is not accidental. It's not hapless that we do the things we do out of a sincere purpose. If you were to ask me to answer that question, why do we do it this way? In one response, I would tell you, we worship the way we do because it is to the best of our understanding the way God calls us to worship. It is our understanding based on our reading of Scripture and the way our earliest brothers and sisters in the early church did. All we want to do is please God. That's why we worship the way we do. So, the questions, the things people notice, the questions people ask. Ever wondered why we meet on Sunday? I mean, of all days of the week, Sunday is probably not the most convenient for some of us. I mean, some people work on Sundays. Some people have lots of things to finish on Sunday that they started on Saturday. All those honeydew chores and all those projects, you know, the ones you think are only going to last about two, two or three hours and they end up not working out because you had to go to Lowe's and Home Depot five times. And so, so Sunday, there's still a lot of things hanging out there. And, and besides tomorrow, you start another full work week. Of, of all days of the week, why Sunday? And if you're a football fan, you probably definitely ask, why Sunday? You barely get out of church to make it to kickoff. Well, it turns out, to the best of our understanding, God calls his people to meet on Sunday. Sunday is not just some random day chosen amidst every other day of the calendar. Sunday becomes known as the Lord's Day. John called it this in John in Revelation chapter 1. Sunday was the day the women went to prepare the body of Jesus and instead were met with an angel who asked, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Sunday, Luke says it was the first day of the week. 
It's in that same chapter of Luke, the ending of Luke's gospel, that you find on the first day of the week, two disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, that they sit down and they enjoy breaking bread with Jesus for the first time. When John tells the story of Jesus' resurrection, he reminds you again, it is Sunday. And in John chapter 20, it is the first day of the week when the disciples are meeting in an upper room behind locked doors and Jesus appears to them. Thomas wasn't there. And so John tells you again, one week later, presumably again on Sunday, Jesus appeared to Thomas. It was Sunday in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, that the church is born. And then our reading this morning, taken from Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Paul is traveling from Jerusalem or on his way to Jerusalem when he stops in Troas and spends seven days. And then Luke tells you on the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul preached. Sunday. It's not an accident that we meet on Sunday. The Jewish people met on the Sabbath day. And and what we know from history, from the best of our understanding, both in Scripture and secular history, is that Christians honored the Sabbath day in some sense, the Jewish people, but Sunday was the day that they met. Sunday was the day they came together because it was the day that Jesus was raised from the grave. Do you know what day of the week the, the Bible starts on? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what day that was? Sunday. Now that may not stand out to you, but the story of Christianity is the story of God recreating. What better day to start that and to worship God than on the first day of the week? Everett Ferguson, who's a noted and respected scholar of early church history, recognized by believers and non-believers as an authority, He said, the evidence for the early Christians' day of assembly is clear and unmistakable. They did not observe the seventh day, the Sabbath, as the Jews, but they assembled on the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we're here today. That's why Sunday is important. And it appears to the best of our understanding that when the early Christians met, they met to break bread. What we've done just a few moments ago. Again, this story in Acts chapter 20. Luke says, when we came together to break bread. It was the day of Jesus' resurrection. A day of recreation. And a day that the early church celebrated it. We have strong evidence from history. That the church met every first day of the week. To break bread. Not once a quarter, not once a year, but every first day of the week. It was the reminder of who God called them to be in community. Jesus called his disciples to take communion in his kingdom. Communion is a time to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus and the implications it has in our lives and in the lives of the community. That's why we do it every first day of the week. And it is to the best of our understanding that when the early church met, they would take up a collection. Seems kind of strange. But, but listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul is out trying to raise money 
for for the church back into Jerusalem to to support them. And Paul assumes that they're going to be together on the first day of the week. And so he says on the first day of the week, take up a collection. It's almost as if you can hear him say, you're going to be there anyway. So the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by some money so that when I come, we don't have to try to get all these funds together. It's the first day of the week. You're going to be there celebrating communion. Take a collection. And you find that one of the things that marked the people of God through the Old Testament and through the New Testament is there were people who gave. Jesus told the story once in Mark chapter 14 of sitting in the temple and watching a widow give her last two mites. It's funny. Giving is one of the things that defines us as God's people. I had a very unique experience last Wednesday night. After I taught class here, I was invited to go speak over at the Southwest Church of Christ over by the airport. And then afterwards, my brother and I, my brother Jamie and I, we went to eat dinner. It was a late dinner. We went to the Western Sizzlin' off of 240. We got our food, we sat down, and we prayed. Our waitress, a young lady by the name of Kayla, she said, it's been a long time since I've seen anyone pray. And Kayla began asking us, where are you from? What are you doing? My brother says, we're preachers. She didn't run, so I was excited about that. (laughs) And she began asking us questions. She has a brother who's not a believer. She's struggling. She's a young student going to UCO. She works clear on the other side of town. We stopped and we prayed with her. And a few minutes passed by and Kayla came and she handed me $11. And she said, this is my tithe. Will you give this to the church? And I said, Kayla, that's not necessary. But she said, I want to do this. When we got up to leave, my brother, who never pays for my meal, put a $5 bill on the table as a tip. And Kayla took that and she says, I don't want your money. Take that and put that in with the church's money. This morning when the plates were passed, I put $16 in the plate that were not my own. They're from a young lady on the south side of Oklahoma City who knows that when God's people meet, God's people share. Paul says, so when you meet... Lay by some money in store. This money is not given to the elders. This money is not given to the preacher. This money is given to God for the purpose of God. That's why we do that. It's not by accident. We know that when when the early church met, to the best of our understanding, they spent a lot of time praying. Paul tells the church in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want you to pray for all men. For those in authority. Peter in 1 Peter called the church to prayer. Paul in every letter seems to call the church to prayer. The whole book of Acts is filled with the church at prayer. In fact, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread. And there it is again. In prayer. There's a second century writer named Tertullian lived in Africa. He said, We meet together in an assembly and congregation so that praying to God, we may win Him over by the strength of our prayers. The kind of force is pleasing to God. 
We pray also for emperors, for their servants, and for those in authority, for the order of the world, for peaceful circumstances, for the delay of the end. It's who God's people are. We're praying people. And so it's no accident that when we meet every Sunday, we meet to pray. And it is, to the best of our understanding, the practice of God's people through time to take time such as this to open the Word of God and to listen to God's voice. We spend a lot of time in our culture and in our day hearing other voices, voices from the news, voices from the White House, voices from Congress, voices from advertisers. But how often do we stop to listen to the voice of God? This is one of the things I love about Wilshire. The fact that if Jim or I dared to stand in this pulpit and proclaim something other than the word of God, it would not be tolerated. I love that this church has a hunger for God's word. Again, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Luke says, we came together to break bread. Paul preached until midnight. Paul was opening God's word and talking about it. And every time someone complains about the length of the sermon, I always point them to this text. Paul preached till midnight. Until one dear brother reminded me, yes, but he started at 10 till. (laughs) Again, Tertullian, a second century writer, says, We meet together in order to read the sacred text. If the nature of the time compels us about about time, we recognize anything present in any case. With the holy words, we feed our faith, we arouse our hope, we confirm our confidence. Paul told young Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 13, Until I arrive, give attention to the reading of Scripture, the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, to teaching. That's why every Sunday when we meet, that we take time to listen to God's word. And if you're a visitor today or if you've visited other churches, the one thing that typically stands out is the way we sing. This is one thing that surprises most of our uh, friends and family who worship with us. Where's the piano? Where's the band? I want to tell you it's not for lack of talent that we don't use instruments. In fact, many of our members here today are extremely musically gifted. Mary Rice, Delena, my wife, give piano lessons, and they can play very well. You may not know this, but Ryan Newell played the flute when he was in elementary school. It's a strange image, isn't it? Regina Kenton teaches music. Jeff Gaddy and I are drummers. It's not for lack of talent. It's for lack of example. The New Testament church simply sang. Paul encouraged the church to sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a historian of music, a secular historian of music, by the name of Kurt Sachs, who said all ancient Christian music was vocal. We need, we need on instrument the peaceful word of adoration, not harps or drums or pipes or trumpets wrote a 2nd century preacher by the name of Clement of Alexandria. 
Now, we can speculate as to why the early church didn't use instruments. But one thing is clear. They didn't. And I don't know why. I do know it was used in Jewish worship. The Jewish temple used it. It was not used in the Jewish synagogue. And most of the early Christians were Jewish people who, for whatever reason, quit using the instrument and chose instead to sing. I've got guesses. It was part of the sacrificial system so that when it was done away with, instruments were as well. It was used in pagan rituals to try to get the attention of their gods. You clang the cymbal, you, you, you play the trumpet, all in a, in, a, in a storm of fury to get the gods to hear you. And what an amazing image for the early church to say, he's already listening. We don't need the other noise. I don't know that's why. But what I do know is that all we want to do is be faithful to God. And there's no example or no call in Scripture. I don't say this to judge or to malign other people who worship anyway. I'm just trying to tell you why we at Wilshire worship the way we do. And that is, to the best of our knowledge, this is how God has called us to worship. Well, there's one other thing that sometimes catches people off guard when they come to worship with us. They find it strange, the people who are leading worship. You may have noticed, waiting on the table, everyday, ordinary men. Men you may work with. Not some special class of trained clergy. And Jim and I are not special. I really expected a hearty amen out of that. There's nothing special about us. We're just like you. There's a writer of preaching textbooks, Thomas Long, who says, When the preacher stands to preach, he arises from the midst of the congregation because he is one of them. We are not a special class of people. We have no special access to God. Anyone with a sincere heart and the calling of God under the direction of God, according to Scripture, can open God's word. And this is why we do it this way. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, writing to the entire church, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said that to you. He said that to me. There's nothing special about the people who stand in front of us. There is, I will admit, one extremely controversial topic that brethren are debating and brethren are discussing. And some forces at work in the church are trying to change. Why is it when we meet every Sunday that worship is led by men? May I assure you it's not because the elders or this church is filled with male chauvinistic pigs. And I assure you again that it's not for lack of talent. This church is filled with wonderful women of God who know scripture better than most of us men. Women who can pray just beautiful prayers. But it is to the best of our understanding, God's calling that when we meet as a church, 
and we meet in worship, God has placed the burden and responsibility on leadership on men. That's not to say women are unimportant. In fact, Scripture will argue strongly the other way. But it's to say that God has given all of us unique responsibilities. And women are called to do things that men cannot do. You know, men can't carry a baby. I mean, we can carry them, but we can't carry a baby. We can't feed children the way women can feed children. And I know culture says, well, that's not real work. That's not a real job. You're telling women they can't leave to stay at home. No, I'm telling you, God has called men to serve in this role. It is not the purpose of the church to be politically correct. But to lead where God has called us to lead. Women do extraordinary things with care and mercy and ministry and children. That men cannot do. God has called you to do that. And I have a theory that the reason it is such a hot topic is because we have so condensed Christian faith only to what happens in this building. And some people assume that since women are not given public roles in the worship, that we're telling women they're unimportant in Christian faith. But that's only true if Christian faith is limited here. And Christian faith extends far outside of this. Listen to these texts. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is why we do it this way. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, I will that men pray everywhere. That language is the language of assembly, the language of worship. And Paul uses the word men, not mankind. He says the male gender. And he says... I do not want a woman to usurp authority over a man, but to learn in quiet subjection. Again, in the first century world, that is revolutionary, that a woman could even learn. Christian faith liberated that. But it is in God's understanding, and I believe in the teaching of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 11, that when we meet, we reflect an order of creation. It is not that women are unimportant. It is that God has called us all to our own special and unique roles. Again, I know there are sincere brethren, sincere sisters who disagree about that. And it is not my purpose in this sermon to judge or malign or to call their faith into question. I just simply want you to know why we worship the way we worship at Wilshire. You see... Our purpose is simply to please God. Worship is not a time for political correctness. Worship is not even a time to try to win the attention and attraction and the praise of non-believers. Worship is not a time to try something new that will attract and impress people in hopes that they'll come join us. And be part of our number. Worship is a time for you and me to stand before God in the most humble position we have to proclaim the praise of God. Anything other than that is not worship. And so I think it is very important 
that we remind ourselves why we do the things we do. Worship is a retelling of our story in song, in prayer, in communion, in preaching, and in sharing. It is a reminder of what God has done in the past and a call to live in hopes of what he promises to do in the future. We worship the way we do, brothers and sisters, because it is to our best understanding the way God has called us to worship. I have no doubt that there are other questions and other concerns than what we can address in one sermon today. And I want you to know that our elders and myself are more than willing to talk about this. We're not here to judge or malign, but simply to say this is who we are. Unapologetically and with good reason, this is why we serve the way we do. I would invite you to be a Christian and join the chorus of praise for what God has done for his people. To be part of a community of people who worship with conviction and worship and sincerity. To give your life in God and experience and understand freedom from sin. From that moment you're baptized and raised to walk in newness of life. To be part of a kingdom people. If we can help you join that today, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.